Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and Stefan Fatsis and I are going to bring you a special episode of Hang Up and Listen. We're recording this on June 4th, 2016, the day after Muhammad Ali's death. In 1964, a young New York Times sports writer named Robert Lipsight was assigned to cover, as he later put it, the dismemberment of the fighter, then known as Cassius Clay, at the hands of heavyweight champion Sonny Liston. After Clay shocked the world, Lipsight covered the boxer for the next three years as he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and helped redefine sports in American society. And Lipsight continued to write about Ali through his death on Friday, an agile mind a buoyant personality, a brash self-confidence, and an evolving set of personal convictions fostered a magnetism that the ring alone could not contain, Lipsight writes in his obituary of Ali in the New York Times. He entertained as much with his mouth as with his fists, narrating his life with a patter of inventive doggerel. Robert Lipsight joins us now. Hey, Bob. Hey, how are you guys? So I, I'm getting all these condolence calls and I don't think we need to mourn. Um, I, I think we just kind of need to celebrate what he once was, which um, really was the most interesting and spectacular sports figure that any of us have ever even thought about, I think. And most importantly, I think what we really want to do, and what we want to do here on this podcast, is remind people that He's not the secular saint in this kind of beatified teddy bear that people have been thinking of him in the last few years. He was um, a very controversial, very scary, very paradoxical, very interesting character who, in his time, kind of epitomized the splits in America. The thing that really makes me totally angry right now is stories coming out about Ali as this noted uh, civil rights activist. If anything, 
early on, when he first rose to prominence, he was the anti-civil rights activist. We were kind of appalled. Most of us were kind of young liberal reporters who were really interested in this story. We're integrationists. And here he came out of the lost found nation of Islam, what we called the black Muslims, who were making deals with the KKK and really wanted to, rather, to segregate themselves from uh, American society. End of rant. <laughs> so in the obituary, when you're given this task, and it was a huge one by the Times, you know, we're all kind of thinking about how do we take the full measure of a man who was such a towering figure in American history. How did you take on that task? And it seems like you're kind of still working through it today. How do you decide what to focus on and, and what maybe you just don't have, have room to include? Well, you know, the, the advantage was when, you know, I had no expectations when I went down to Miami Beach. He was going to get beaten. And, and we knew he was going to get beaten because I was sent down. Uh, if, if they thought he had a chance, they would have sent a real reporter. Um, so they send the kid down. I have no expectations. I'm not a boxing writer. I'm a feature writer. I'm, I'm you know, a couple of years older than he is. Uh, I'm thrilled to be there. And, and, and that kind of was the basis for the next, um, Jesus, for the next 52 years of covering him. The idea that I was evolving, he was evolving. And, and the measure of the man is his evolution from this barely literate, clownish prodigy into you know, something of a, of a thoughtful, complex human being. And, and, and that was a kind of a, an interesting progression to watch it happen. I mean, in the very beginning when he gave speeches about the black Muslims and his involvement with Allah and all, I mean, it was this terrible dogmatism of, of, of somebody who was not even able to totally integrate his new religion with his life. You know, later on, he, uh, he could make jokes. So I, I, I think that catching the full measure of him is not trying to catch him at any particular point in time, but rather in the evolution of uh, Cassius Clay into Muhammad Ali and the evolution of, of America, you know, in the 52 years of his time. It, it really is striking, I think, uh, that Ali's life can be compartmentalized in certain ways. And this is, of course, what you do 2020. But there were those early years when you stumbled into Florida and covered him through the brash rise to become heavyweight champion. And then there is the come down, his barring from boxing, his opposition to Vietnam, the change from this, this crazy fast talking, young boxer into this symbol of something. And then the return when he's still a successful boxer, you know, winning the heavyweight title twice more, but by the same token, he's not the fast unstoppable force in the ring that he was. And then he boxes too long till he was damn near 40 and very quickly soon after becomes ill and the symptoms are clear and he, and he transitions into this sort of humanitarian, as you said, this cuddly, um, lovable humanitarian. It's a, it's a remarkable sort of arc of, of a life. Absolutely. I, and I think that you, you also answered the question better than I could have because, you know, those are, of course, the chapters of that arc. And yet, 
I think back to the idea of not losing sight of, of you know of our character is the fact that you know within all of that, uh, within those changes, within those chapters, and and most important, the change in perception because society was now changing and in some ways coming around to some of his attitudes was the fact that there was always that humor. That humor never left. You know, I think Dave Anderson wrote about the twinkle in his eye, and that was always true, because even towards the end, when he was virtually mute, you would come away uh, with, you know, 10 minutes in his presence thinking you, you had just had this warm conversation where no, led, you know, real word was passed uh, that could be understood. And yet there was this kind of, you know, sense of warmth, the twinkle in his eye, his own body language, maybe the way he reached and hugged you or touched you, that you really felt, you know, this constant human connection. And, and that was him always, even as a young man. So, I mean, those things were always there. There was a kind of humanity to him. The other thing was that beginning to end, uh, his most important legacy was that he made us braver in the beginning as an amazing uh, symbol to young black men, to young white men who didn't want to go into the army, to people standing up for their principles against a government that was on a very wrong and illegitimate path. And then at the end, I always felt his kind of finest hour in making us braver was this symbol of the gallant patient. I mean, he never went and hid until he, you know, really was immobile. But he never went and hid. He he was out there. He was brave. Uh, he showed us that he would, despite his infirmity, do as much as he could. And uh, to me, I cried in 1996 when he lit the Olympic torch in Atlanta. You know, his whole body, his arm, his hand were shaking. And later somebody told me that... Uh, some hot wax from the torch uh, had flowed down and burnt his hand, and he, you know, refused to flinch. He didn't want to show anybody that uh, something bad had happened. So, I mean, I mean he, was, um, he was wonderfully symbolic. I, this is kind of a little crude, but in some ways I, I always think of him as that door of the refrigerator in which we put magnets, you know, uh, notes to ourselves, you know, little sayings. You know, they're kind of tiny bumper stickers. He was somebody that we could use for our wants and needs. He became the symbols that we wanted and needed because he himself, other than, you know, standing firm and being tough and not quitting, he didn't really have, you know, strong and specific principles. Uh, attitudes, political stances. He was just a walking hug. Before he became a symbol, he was a boxer. And I'd love to hear you describe what it was like to watch him fight, what the feeling was like in the arena. Well, one of the reasons that the older reporters were antagonistic to him besides the fact that he wasn't laconic like Joe Lewis, their beau ideal, was the unorthodoxy of his style. And uh, so what he did was very risky, and it was only possible because of 
is incredible speed and coordination. So there was always the sense that he was going to get tagged, that he was going to get hit really hard because instead of you know moving from side to side and letting punches go over his shoulders harmlessly, he leaned back with the, always the possibility that his opponent would take that one step forward and, and hit him again as he was leaning back and knock him into the ropes and then down to the canvas. And early on, the terrific speed, uh, you know, that movement, that dance, uh, it was exciting to watch. Also, I think that we, later on, when he had lost a lot of that speed, we underestimated, because he, he seemed like a quick and flashy boxer, we underestimated his ability and willingness to take punishment. He took a lot of punishment. He got hit hard. And, and one of the reasons that that worked, and eventually to his, uh, to his detriment, was that he allowed sparring partners to hit him in the gym. This is kind of rare among champions. When he was in the gym, uh, he would let them hit him if they could. And uh, it toughened him up. Uh, it also, as we know, began you know, those endless insults to his brain that ended up in, in a kind of trauma that probably contributed to the Parkinson's. So he could take punishment, which was absolutely made clear in those three fights with Joe Frazier, and he could also dole out punishment. And even when uh, he was not able to move as well as he could, he was still a slippery character. And there's a wonderful line by uh, the L.A. Times' Jim Murray, uh, who, who talked about his later boxing matches as recitals. I think we sometimes forget that Ali was taken away from the sport in his absolute prime. 1967, I mean, he was, what, 25 years old, and he didn't box again until he was, what, Bob, 29? Absolutely right. I mean, those were three and a half of the, his prime years as a fighter. What would he have been like if he had kept progressing you know, through those three and a half years? But also, one would like to think that he would have quit earlier and not gone on and taken some really serious punishment, Ernie Shavers, Larry Holmes, towards the end. There's a story you tell about interviewing Ali in a trailer. There are three women in there. Then two of them leave. Then the trailer starts shaking. Well, yeah, I mean, his, his sexual exploits were beyond legend. The screenwriter, uh, Ring Lardner, who wrote the uh, screenplay for uh, his book, The Greatest, as Ring explained, you know, since the book itself was uh, totally unreliable, there was no reason that he had to write a reliable screenplay. So he made that up, too. But the point that he made, uh, I couldn't understand how Ali could have so many sexual dalliances in the same day. And Ring Lardner explained that uh, Ali did not allow himself to come to climax because he felt it was, it was really important that he could at least give some sort of uh, service to as many women as possible. I, to him, it was like giving autographs. Why was this not in the obituary? <laughs> uh, so, um, 
but the the particular time that you're talking about was yeah he um he brought three women into uh, this trailer sent two out uh, a few minutes later the the trailer began to shake and there were you know lots of people standing around the trailer because he had just fought an exhibition match in a field in Florida and i remember you know the you know his handlers and Angelo Dundee, his trainer, and you know everybody saw me standing there, you know, writing notes in my my notebook, and they said, you know, this is off the record; it didn't happen. I said, well, it's happening in front of hundreds of people. How can it not happen? He said, no, no, but if you write it, if you write it in the New York Times, if you can get it into the New York Times, you will lose access, and you will never be able to talk to Muhammad Ali again. And I, I kind of thought about it, and I felt really sad about it, because this was in the 70s. But you know, what can you do? It's, it, it's not as if I was the only one in the world who saw it, and I could be discreet. You know, it was a public event, so I, I wrote it. And it was the end of a magazine piece in the New York Times magazine, and I, and I just kind of described the scene. I think I may even have kind of flounced it up by saying that the trailer had shaken like uh, Emma Bovary in her uh, carriage with her lover going around the park. But the title, which I did not write, uh, was King of All Kings on the magazine piece. So now it's, you know, like six months later, and I understand that Ali's not going to talk to me, but I'm sent down to do a, a piece on Ali on set for the greatest and I know, you know, on a movie set, there are lots of people who'll talk to me. <laughs> you know, even if the hero does, no problem. Uh, so I go on the set, and the first thing I hear is this yell, Bob, and it's Ali running over to me. He gives me a big hug, and he smiles, and he said, King of all kings, boy, you got that right. So, I mean, so much for uh, protecting. You know, uh, all these sexual dalliances. And of course, all of this was done while he was married to other people who were not in attendance at the time. Bob, how do you think that Ali came to be this representation of so many different things in American culture, race, class, religion, goodness, badness, braggadocio, the rise of what you called sports world? And how did he come out? as this benighted, beloved figure? Think of the moment of creation. One, here is the most beautiful creature I have ever seen. The Beatles also thought so, and, and so do millions of other people. So here's this absolutely gorgeous human being. Uh, he's warm, he's funny, he's totally lovable, and then he delivers his boast. Wow, we go for that in America. And what is his boast? That he is the toughest man on the planet. 1964, remember, the heavyweight championship really still mattered in America, in the world. So, so here's the heavyweight championship going to the most beautiful man on the planet, this lovable braggart, who now we know is not a braggart because he's telling the truth. And then suddenly... He becomes involved in the most important issues in American life. Number one, the most important, race. Number two, the time of this terrible turbulence 
over America in this war that's splitting us apart. And three, he steps out of the primary religion in America. He's an apostate. He becomes a Muslim. We don't even know what a Muslim was, most of us at that time. So from that beginning, and it's not as if he, you know, then got beaten or disappeared or, or, you know, changed his mind about anything. From that very beginning, that amazing explosive beginning, uh, he just kind of grew and grew and grew. And people loved him and hated him and misunderstood him willfully. And so there was, as long as he could keep going, as long as he could keep that flame alive, and, you know, thanks to Howard Cosell, uh, he even kept that flame alive during that three and a half years where he was not boxing. Uh, And then he comes out on the other end, he returns to us, and we really appreciate him because, one, uh, he's made the sacrifice that we really understand in America. You know, he gave up millions and millions of dollars for his principal. And two, he went through this blood redemption where, um, you know, he really got punished and beaten hard to prove himself as a man you know, against his toughest opponent, Joe Frazier. So, you know, by that time, I think he's totally locked into our minds. And a whole generation of young, white, American boys and the girls and mothers who loved them really loved him because he took away the the stigma, the onus of not wanting to serve your country, of being, quote, a draft dodger, because... This man, this incredible, principled, beautiful man who could have had an easy job in the Army, who gave up millions of dollars, who stood firm, you know, kind of hung manhood on everybody else. I mean, it was amazing into the 80s and 90s, sitting with him in, uh, you know, restaurants and, and having, um, you know, men of his age now, you know, late middle age, kind of come up to him with tears in their eyes and thanking him. You know, you know, they're not thanking him for being heavyweight champion. They're thanking him for um, making them feel principled and like men, too. So with all these things going on, and of course the attitude of the country has now changed towards the Vietnam War, uh, he has moved to a more orthodox form of Islam. Uh, he's certainly not a segregationist anymore. Uh, he's obviously a hero, and and he's easier to take now. He's not dogmatic. And as he becomes more and more infirm, uh, he becomes less and less threatening. And that past in which he really did antagonize so many people and really did frighten the government, they thought that African Americans would refuse to serve in the Army now, All that recedes in the past, and all is left is this man who is famous for being famous. And it's, you know, I I go into high schools for, you know, my young adult novels, and it's kind of heartbreaking. I have to, you know, kind of explain who Muhammad Ali is. Uh, And he's not just, oh, isn't he? He's that kind of old, old sick boxer. No, he's not an old sick boxer. He's, you know, symbolic of the last 50 years of American life. A lot of people didn't like Muhammad Ali, though. I mean, the government certainly was looking at Ali in the 60s. Uh, he was a counterculture figure. He didn't embody, for many people, 
progress in America. He, he was a threat to America. Yeah, they were afraid of him basically because as it was getting harder and harder to get troops for Vietnam, there was always the feeling that, you know, what happened, you know, once, you know, minority, uh, minority boys refused to serve. I mean, they did not, which really meant the government didn't really understand American people. Uh, if they thought that this guy was going to keep people out of the army, which, of course, he never did. And also the early involvement with Malcolm X, which, you know, scared them. And then there were a lot of, uh, you know, quote, patriotic people uh, who were, uh, you know, how can you refuse to fight for your country and you're willing to go and beat up other boys? You know, I'd been in the army (laughs) by that time, and I wasn't totally immune from that feeling myself. You know, I was against the war, for sure, and I, I was for the protests and everything like that, but there was something, there was something ambivalent in, in my attitude. I hadn't really quite worked it out yet about his conscientious objection, and, and a lot of people were very angry about that. So, I mean, if I had my qualms and I was invested in him, you can imagine a lot of other people were. Yeah, he was very controversial. I, I think a lot of that you know, passed away as as people's attitudes towards the war changed. Was there a single moment, a quiet one or a loud one, where you were in in Ali's presence and felt like, okay, I'm getting the real guy now. Like, this is the real Ali. Yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. I remember one of them, we were rushing to a plane in an airport, and I really wanted to make the flight and get home. And uh, as we're rushing... Uh, a small older woman stood in front of us with one of those throwaway cameras, and he stopped, and he posed. She took the picture. I grabbed his arm and, and said, come on, come on, let's go. Wait, he said. She had the lens cap on. <laughs> he reached over and very delicately took out the lens cap and uh, posed again, took the picture. Then I grabbed him, and uh, he said, you know, she would have felt bad the rest of her life that she didn't get that picture. I said, yeah, but we're going to miss the plane. And he said, we're not going to miss the plane. They're going to wait for me. And they did. And then we got to the plane, and he said, sit by me, Bob. And I said, well, I can't. You know, I have an economy class ticket. You have a first class ticket. He said, sit by me. I'm the champ. They'll let you sit there. And they did. And I mean, in, in some strange sort of ways, I keep thinking about that. You know, this, uh, this enormous kindness, this incredible narcissism, and also this sense of who he was and, and what other people thought of him. It's a very small moment, but I mean, it, it meant a lot to me. Robert Lipsight wrote the obituary for Muhammad Ali for the New York Times. He's the author of the memoir, The Accidental Sports Writer, and many other books. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, we'll be back with a full episode of Hang Up on Monday. And we'd love your feedback and what we talked about on today's mini-episode on Muhammad Ali. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes. You can find it at itunes.com slash slatepodcast, and you can leave us a comment and a rating there, too. Our intern is Laura Wagner. 
Producing this episode is Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.